0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Sound Consulting. G'day
1: Karen, how are you? Well, it's nice to be back.
0: It is nice to have you back. You're back in, the, back in person, uh, so your eyes aren't playing tricks on you. people. He really is. No, great.
1: no, no, I'm not, Matt. I'm much more controversial than Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Matt outscored me last week, so he's never coming on again. How's your rate? <laughs> <laughs> I hope my rate's getting better. But today is the royal wedding for FCW and found. Rob and Kim get married today, So, and you and I, you are dressed better than I'll ever get dressed, but you're going to get dressed up. I will. Yeah. Hey,
0: what are you trying to say?
1: <laughs> well, this is me getting dressed up. All right, so that's very exciting. So there's all the bouncers and security will be there to keep the media away. It'll be very mm-hmm. exciting. And I've just come back from overseas. And i got to tell you, we're pretty lucky in Australia. Yeah. And I think going through Asia and realizing the impact of COVID is very, very dramatic, distressing. And for us, I think there's some really good things that come out of that. What it did for me was to sit down and look at. The sovereignty and ethics of, the, of our supply chain to yeah. make sure that we can, as a business, ensure that we have proper supply, but also that the nature of the people who supply us have good governance built around diversity. We have a sovereign supply chain so that we actually can meet our client needs through it. So it's been a fascinating journey, but uh, it was an incredibly distressing journey as well.
0: Yeah, well, look, while you're, and look, we are very lucky, Andrew, while you were away over the past week, um, for those who are working in this city or have to come in, there's been, I've certainly felt the uh, the uplift in terms of uh, foot traffic and uh, uh, activity around him. It's great. It's great to see people back and interacting. And no it's we're very, very lucky that we've got a government who uh, is very much invested in providing that. So. I think so
1: too. So look, let's jump into a couple of things. WorkSafe Victoria published some new regulations. Those regulations are around psychological safety. They're modelled on the code in New South Wales and from the same drawn from the same evidence base, which says overwhelmingly that psychological stress is profoundly caused by workplace design. That's not just how your desk is set up. It's the way you're asked to work. It's the amount of work you've done, the tools you have to achieve, that type of work. But what these regulations do, which is a very significant thing, and Nina's coming in next week in Karen's absence to talk about how these regulations actually affect your leadership mm-hmm. in an organisation. Because they create a positive journey. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing. And when we look at it next week, we're going to look at it next week in terms of how women are treated at work. And this terrible upswing recently in online abuse around women. We saw the Sydney Morning Herald article which talked some frightening levels of abuse, racism for minority communities, such as 80% of women between the ages of 18 and 35, with minority minority groups being racially vilified online. Very scary stuff.
0: I think the other thing that was concerning about that as well, Andrew, is that the majority of um, that abuse or that behaviour came from school or the workplace. Now, with that, that makes it an issue that we have to deal with.
1: Oh, it does. And together with these guidelines, or not guidelines, these regulations that have come up, you actually need to reevaluate what is the structure that you bring to your environment to manage psychological health. Whereas before we've been able to say, look, it's a good thing to do. And we talk about workplace wellbeing, which our business is built on. But ours is a highly structured workplace wellbeing. It does have mm-hmm. internal risk assessment process. It does have service delivery. It does have methodologies to get to that service. It's based on evidence. Yeah, And really what these new regulations are saying is in the absence of that evidence, this is also a platform for easy prosecution.
0: It is. Look, it's really significant. Personally, I'm very excited about it in the sense in terms of it's very progressive. Having said that from an employer standpoint, there is quite a bit to navigate and a lot of questions to be asking, certainly at a higher level, in terms of what does this mean? What is it we need to do differently? Why? And one thing I can definitely see out of this, Andrew, and I think, Nina, hopefully, I'm sure you guys will cover this up next week, is that this whole traditional concept of... uh, Safety and risk and people, that in terms of challenging whether or not that's really going to be sustainable or whether that's the best way well, to sustain it. A nonsense. Well, yeah. I've, I've got a view on that too. I no, no, like, I when it, yeah. you look
1: at a disrupted environment, yeah. to have siloed methods of providing workers' compensation, risk and safety, and people, it's, it's just not agile enough. It doesn't it reflect the needs. Yeah. And to have them reporting differently up the food chain is insane. There are only two parts to a business there is the labour you know, how you actually created the machines, the people, yeah, and the services that are supplied to the people and machines. There's only two columns in an organisation, and one is a service delivery and one that grows and develops that capacity, not just delivering a service. It actually drives and motivates. And the other is actually the delivery. Yeah. And this idea of having siloed development is rubbish. And these, these regulations will really punish yeah, it will. organisations who continue. It will that. expose
0: them, actually, in terms of how yeah, unresponsive
1: or is. it is. So, but look,
0: more on that, I think. Um, yeah, sorry, we've got
1: to be excited by that. And that's partly yeah. because I've only had eight hours sleep and three days <laughs> of travel. Okay, the first case I want to talk to you about is Rebecca Johnson and Benick Civil, which is a, a case about income cap, caps and availability in the unfair dismissal regime. Not a novel case, okay, but I, as I was sitting in Thailand by a pool, I thought this is a case we just have to talk about because this was a case where a woman with a packaged income which included health entitlements, the usual other accoutrements of business and a car for personal use managed to push it beyond what was the salary cap for unfair dismissal. Big deal, you might think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it is a big deal because customarily the methods of calculating personal use are really arbitrary. Mm-hmm. They're often driven by ATO methodologies which don't reflect reality. And what this case did is the commissioners just asked the question, so roughly how much a day do you use this for personal use? About 100 kilometres. And that was enough to add $20,000 on top of the car use, which pushed her outside of the cap. Mm-hmm. But the question is, if you'd ordered by the ATO and you got this wrong mm-hmm. and you didn't have the logbooks, which is usually the case, mm-hmm. you've got a huge FBT risk that sits around it as well. But for you, Karen, who at the moment are assisting businesses in this employee environment of creating packaging, it's really important, isn't it? It
0: is. And particularly right now, Andrew, when it's an employee market and you know, we're seeing a lot of kareem, I'm oh, sorry, kreem, uh, mixing words together. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, I've got
1: the problem coming. It's got some really good right, Okay. It, so. All right.
0: Okay. I'll wait for that. <laughs> um, creative remuneration packaging happening. Okay. So... Rather than ordinary remuneration is... Can
1: you say creative remuneration package? Creative right?
0: remuneration package, Andrew. Would you like me to say that again? Three times first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Next time. Anyway, so in terms of how you structure that, rather than just um, a base salary and super, there might have a phone, it might have a laptop, you might have you know, a gym membership or something else in there, But and there's all sorts of other things. There's bonuses that are involved and other incentives as well. What is that? Because that it could be an extra 10K, but that 10K could take you over the threshold, like you said, which then... You know, in terms of whether or not it even can go to unfair dismissal, like it won't even have to go there. But it, it, I'd rather. But and it's a lever, it, though, isn't it? It's it a lever, lever you've got. Wouldn't it be better if we know this in advance so we can manage that with confidence rather than kind of get there and then like, well, hang on, let's go back and figure out whether we do or we don't. I, I don't. And you're caught, and there. You
1: are. You're caught on the line. You go. All right. Is this claim valid or is this claim but, not? Valid? I mean, why? Why would you be there? Twenty thousand dollars into a piece of litigation. Exactly. When all you have to say to the person when they bring the claim is, no, you read your personal use as this, goodbye, bad luck. Anyway, so interesting case. Next case, a safety case. A safety case which is so regrettable in a number of ways. It's Campbell and Lockheed Proprietary. This was a person who went into clean a machined area, sought to isolate in accordance with the policy. The organisation was unable to support that process and the person was crushed and killed. Mm-hmm. Like these are the sort of stories we hear so often and they're always around isolation. In fact, we, we start to deal with isolation as a question in the, in, the, in the case study we've got today because of this. These are the types of places where you have low frequency but high risk. So they're often missed in the risk assessment of how lethal and how dangerous they are. And isolation, people keep thinking when you're dealing with heavy machinery, you can isolate through the way people behave, through Safe operating procedure. You can't. You have to be able to physically isolate and be satisfied when a person enters a space of that risk that the machine is isolated and doesn't turn on and doesn't force food or other objects into a person. And the organisation knew this risk and did nothing about it. Now this case had a massive fine involved, but the case's the reason I chose it is this is what we deal with every day. Our safety team constantly deal with isolation failures, and. The issue that we constantly deal with is the failure to recognise the high and extreme risk that sits around them, mm-hmm. because we don't see the frequency risk we see with fall.
0: One of the things I help clients with when it comes to identifying risk, Andrew, I educate on that. That yes, it's very it's very easy for us to pick up the high frequency type of hazards or incidents, right? But what are the low frequency, high consequence incidents or hazards as well? And like you said, because they are. It doesn't matter how frequent they occur. We should be looking at the potential risk rating in terms of if this could kill someone or permanently maim someone, or you know, you know that we need to be, we need to do something about that now. And it needs to be a a strong control.
1: And how can a person enter a space mm. when it's not isolated? It's just such an obvious. Anyway, that's why we chose the case because I, I think with Nina and I this year, it's probably a dozen cases we've dealt with already where there's been isolation risks that occur. Which haven't haven't been implemented and where people have either been injured or nearly injured as a result of it. Let's move on to the unfair dismissal case. And I guess, Karen, this is sorry, close to our heart. I, don't I,
0: don't don't restrain yourself. That is right,
1: where I hit the table downstairs, hit <laughs> tired, and actually the table well, and everyone looked at the cafe. But Cube is a business where Karen and I, have both known people, who have worked over a number of years, really highly skilled and innovative people who've done some really clever stuff, particularly mm-hmm. around well-being and safety. Yes, sir. So I sort of be devastated to read this case because this was industrial dispute at Cube in Fremantle. Someone had a really bright idea that rather than just stand down <laughs> people who weren't able to work, which were the ship managers if everyone else was on strike, mm-hmm. rather than do that, what they'd do is they'd provide them, they'd say, We want you to sign this confidentiality agreement. Which requires you to work, requires you to do work which is not part of your job description, steam work. So keep the dock going, be treated as a scab in the dock, but they wouldn't show them the agreement they were gonna sign. Now you when someone says I want you to sign something. No, that's I guess. <laughs> I was not no, gonna no, show on, it. Look, uh, <laughs> confidential,
0: yeah,
1: confidentiality to <laughs> the next level, Andrew. Really. I mean, so heavy. confidential, isn't it? Well, yeah. Now this is Dixville. This, <laughs> this is sort of the dumbest thing I have ever heard. And then, because they didn't do it, they sacked them. They said they had to comply with the law from the reasonable direction. So and Gordon appeared for this. <laughs> explicitly said, how can it be lawful to require someone to do something that's not their job? Yeah. The commissioner was just outraged, and, and rightly so. Just rightly so. This is the dumbest case I've read this year. In fact, the fact that this even went to a hearing is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Anyone who thought of running this was stupid as well because the brand damage, the loss of money, the loss of engagement. And these are not your enterprise agreement employees. These are actually your management employees you treat like this. Mm, I mean, how dumb do you get?
0: Yeah, I guess if I was an employee at Cuba, it it would raise, certainly as a manager at Cuba, it certainly raised the issue of who if they're going to try that on them, what would they try on me? And let's just you, do that. you want to
1: know how dumb it was. What they provide security for the ops manager, but for the six people they were going to force to do a scab job, they offered op- no security. <laughs> can you believe that? I'm going to send you in the battle, and you're on your own, and you've got an agreement you don't even see and you've signed. That's just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Shove out of this world, done. And can I just say, never run stupid litigation. Because this is the most stupid litigation I've seen run this year, and the damage to Cube and the people around it and on the ground would must be enormous. It's so silly. Okay, so okay. now what? Well, let's give Andrew a moment to calm down. Okay, so I remember that... Matt rated better than me last week, so just because I'm controversial, don't rate me badly. <laughs> <laughs> I've had no sleep, and I read this decision on the plane, it killed me, it just killed me.
0: Yeah, you probably woke up everyone else in your aisle too. I oh, did. Yeah, anyway, I fell off the table. That's it it. Yeah. So I think the thing out from from this here practically, is <laughs> these kind of ideas in terms of where you're placing at risk, or what you're trying to do is trying to be a bit too clever and rip people off, or just do something that's really un- like clearly underhanded. There's never a good business case. Yeah. There's never a good commercial or economic case behind like that, Andrew. No. It may appear so, but it's just not. My my late dad used to
1: call it being too smart by half. And Don't go there. Yep. Yeah. All right, well, look, let's jump on to something which I'm not a at, which is supporting employees to return to work. I'll leave Karen to discuss the National Bank, but <laughs> I guess the legal part of returning people to work is this. There are two core consultation obligations that exist. Now, Karen will tell you what she told me today. People are increasingly frustrated by having to consult on every decision about changes in the way we work. But remember, for two years across Australia, people have been working in an entirely flexible, sometimes exclusively at home environment. So there is a change that we're seeking to implement now after the expiry of government directions. And what I want you, this, everyone to understand is the chronological order of consultation, first in safety, and that has an obligation before you make a decision to actually undertake the risk assessment process and to engage actively with the people who will be involved before the decision. What's the system? The guy who's charged with murdering a couple in Victoria. Ah, okay. Sorry, there's something else coming up there. So there's that pre-decision. The moment you make a decision for ward-based employees, there is an obligation to consult because it is a substantial change in the manner in which work is being done. And that consultation takes the decision which you've gained through the consultation and risk process with employees to go back to employees and check the impact it has on them, and to try and mitigate the effect. This is not a big job, but it's a great engagement model and yes. it's actually required by law. So on that basis, it's the only valid thing I have to say besides making wacky jokes. I'm going to hand over to you. All
0: right. So look.
1: You can hear Karen's frustration on the back, can't you?
0: No, no, I'm really that
1: under control.
0: No, i t- <laughs> just, just <laughs> calm down, would you? would you? you don't have any water as well? For goodness sake. Anyway. I had coffee, did I? Yes. All right. Well, look, we are seeing people back at the office. We're all coming back at the decision here. <laughs> What we're talking about is the direction is no longer... you want to get back to
1: remuneration again? That yeah, so creative
0: <laughs> remuneration. See, I can say it with my eyes closed. <laughs> All right. So we're now able to get people back to work, okay? What that means is that should you and does that mean that as an employer you can command people, a flick of a switch, to come back in and work as you did um, yeah, on site or in the office as before? The argument and the understanding may be that, yes, that's what you can do, But in actuality, it's not. And it's actually a lot more involved in that than that because Andrew just covered off there in terms of two requirements around the safety aspect of it in terms of the risk assessment part of it and then once you've made a decision following that is once you've made a decision to consult with people and communicate properly. Now, what I've got here for you is a couple of points for consideration. For businesses who have not yet made that decision, don't rush into making a decision, okay? You will get to a decision but it's important before you, you, you I guess, move with this popular, um, I guess, catch on headlines that we're seeing on the news about CEOs going on about getting people back at work and how much it's hurting the economy. That, That all may be valid, but what we're losing here, Andrew, is an opportunity to really help our people understand why coming back to work is important, why that's good for them, why that's good for the team, why that's good for the organisation, and to be able to help people do that properly
1: it would be nice to have some evidence as well, wouldn't it?
0: Well, you do. And you do need to have the evidence. Because if you don't have the evidence, right, people are going to come up with their own narrative, their right. own
1: story. This is what CFMU and BHP came about, which was the vaccination. argument. how do you say you've gone out to consult when you don't present actually what the evidence is?
0: Well, what are you consulting on?
1: That's right. What is the evidence? When we hear NAB chief saying, you know, losing profit, da, da 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 and belting a table. Well, is that true?
0: Well, look, and what we said... Is that the evidence you want to see? Mind you, Andrew, that the evidence may actually be there, right? They may have actually done that work, but what a wasted opportunity if you didn't present that and communicate that and engage with people well so they understood that. But, you know, if they don't see that, they don't understand the benefit and they don't get to enjoy the benefit of that. So this is equally, this is more of a communication engagement piece than anything else. I mean, I know this is definitely a safety piece, but... You could do all the work, but if it's not communicated and people want to understand and they're not on board, you've lost it, okay? So, really, a couple of things for you. So, decide in terms of um, determining your position on return to work or return to office requirements, what is it that you're expecting? What do you require? But why? Okay, so as Andrew's covered off already, where is the evidence to support that? And is your, are you able to present a clear business case to, to support that decision? And again, that's for an employee perspective, the team, the organisation, because people can be, I guess people can be unhappy and it may be an unpopular decision, but if you can understand the why and the evidence is there, you agree and you're more likely to comply with it, all right? And therefore, your narrative around the communication, I've gone on about this before, really, really important. When it gets to coming back to work, though, are we clear around who has authority to make decisions around flexible work arrangements and what you can and what you can't do. Because what's that line of authority? How does that actually work? We do need to ensure that our managers have the ability to support people. But what does that look like? If it's unspoken, you're going to get, it will be an absolute mess. And there comes the frustration and, again, the loss of engagement. In terms of considering your work structures as well, have a think about this. And I mean thoughtfully. For example, what are the critical or optimal times of day that your team need to be here or you know how do you get the best out of your people so again you can see these are real considerations Andrew practically rather than okay everyone in back in see you Monday three days a week or whatever yeah yeah
1: and here I have been a parent to a child co-parenting in a way I've never been over before I've hit all my productive targets and someone's saying me now you've got to come to work and disband this wonderful thing that I've had at home I don't know. I don't think it resonates too well. I think the evidence needs to say, look, around these types of decisions or in our business, we have built a rule which is a roughly 50-50 rule. Yep. It's around all critical discussions are at work. It's around team collaboration, so we use the environment as a collaborative environment, not just a work environment. Mm-hmm. And we've allowed people a level of flexibility to enjoy the benefits they accrued in family mm. before, but to focus on what really needs to be done at work and why work is critical at work.
0: Yeah, well, you're... Let's see. SEW is a living example of everything that I'm saying here though so and it works okay but, yeah. but you're clear about why it works and you've been very deliberate around how that's all come together so look in terms of personal needs and circumstances definitely remember we have been conditioned to the last two years of uh, this other work arrangement so certainly facilitate a positive transition make it easy and fun for people to come to work you know there's a couple so many different things that you can do but think about that. And lastly, around COVID-safe protocols as well. Look, that hasn't gone away. Make it easy for people to understand, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And make it easy for people to comply with it as well. We're talking about sanitising. We're talking about, you know, whether you're still wearing masks in the office or whatever. Make that accessible to people because otherwise you're just saying it and you're seeing non-compliance. So really, it's just, you know, it's all talk and
1: doesn't mean Obvious things like make available med tests like we have. So all the... All the elements of COVID are available here. Yeah. And that's what should happen.
0: And just on this, everyone, we have received a couple of queries around accessing the slides. I know previously we used to send them out in emails, but where these are now housed at the Found Consulting website. So if you go there, every week the slides
1: will be loaded. All right. We're going to case study.
0: Okay, let's go. I
1: enjoy doing this one, Karen.
0: Okay, we've got Luca was a maintenance team leader at Drum Makers Universal Manufacturers, Bayswater. Dump. He was an inquisitive but pugnacious employee. Did I get that right? (laughs) You did, Oh, look at that. Remuneration. Luca had observed that the new metal press machine, the Press, although highly advanced in its productive capacity, had several points where live wiring could be accessed when in operation. Luca had raised these issues during commissioning with the dumb COO, Gus, and had registered the risks on the safety and maintenance software, SAMS. Luca had rated the risk as extreme and had set up interim measures for the afternoon shift. Gus had arranged for all wires within reach of employees to be enclosed. However, the wires at the top of the machine, 3.6 metres above the factory floor, remained unguarded despite Luca's request, which was supported by the ship HSR and a detailed risk assessment. The press was surrounded by an enclosed fence with a gateway, which when open automatically depowered the press. Some of the production workers had developed a habit of jamming the gateway cut out so they could enter and clean the machine whilst it was operating. Gus had sent a memo around telling people to stop, but was not too concerned because when the press cut it out, it took 30 minutes to repower and reset. When Lucas started his afternoon shift that Wednesday, he noticed the cutout on the press had been bypassed. He immediately fixed it and called the production supervisor to explain it must not happen again. Two hours later, Swan, a young production worker, scaled the fence to go in and clean the press. Swan was holding a steel brush that touched a live wire at the top of the press. She was electrocuted and thrown to the floor, causing her death.
1: So I'll read those questions out to you just to fill in a bit of time. One is, could Gus be successfully prosecuted for reckless endangerment? He's the COO of DUM. Could Gus be successfully prosecuted for industrial manslaughter? And could Luca be successfully prosecuted for failing to exercise reasonable care to prevent injury to another under safety law? Remember, all individuals have a personal duty to exercise reasonable care to prevent injury to themselves or others, oh. and obviously that is the supervisor duty that regulators look to when prosecuting supervisors. So we'll look to Sophie to know when we're allowed to start answering those questions, and she's pulling uh, an interesting face which is hard to determine. Use time to respond to the chat panel. Okay, well... I'm There's not much there to respond to, so...
0: Well, I think Chris has um, made a comment earlier around an unfair dismissal claim... A
1: person who murdered some people, and was that a pretty stupid claim to bring? The answer is, whatever's happened, if he's been locked up, his employment contract has been frustrated, and therefore the contract comes to an end as an operation of law, not as a result of... (laughs) I'm getting... operation of law not as a result of a unfair termination by the employer so it is a dumb claim chris as dumb as dumb as a rock I was dumb as cube but dumb.
0: <laughs> and while we're just waiting there just again a reminder around um, joining the friday workplace briefing as well so you will need to click on a link to join us for next week because um that's that's the setup on linkedin and again feel free to to share that around with uh,
1: your network So the first question is, could Gus be successfully prosecuted for reckless endangerment? Reckless endangerment is an event that causes serious injury or death, so a risk that could create serious injury or death, and a person being careless in relation to that risk. In other words, being indifferent to the risk. Mm -hmm. So Gus, in this case, knew there was a risk of electrocution. He did do things about it, and this is often misunderstood in reckless endangerment. The fact that you do something but it's stupid, Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you've done something that gets around reckless endangerment. Mm. He's indifferent to a particular risk which was at the higher point and as a result of that, I'm afraid, he would be charged successfully with reckless endangerment because having those live wires where they were, knowing that people could access them, breaches regs, yeah. breaches electric, electrical safety legislation, it's a fundamental breach.
0: Well, he knew and he just didn't do enough But that's really the
1: yeah. Now, the next question is, could he be charged with industrial manslaughter? And the answer is, I'm afraid, yes, because to start off, what are the elements of it? Is there a breach of duty by Guts? Well, there's a breach of duty by the business for which Gus is the CEO and as an officer, therefore, there's a breach of duty. Was it a gross negligence? Now, this is the part that you've got. It did cause death, so was it grossly negligent? The answer is the exposure of live wires in any circumstances under Australian law, knowingly permitting, the exposure that likewise would be gross negligence. Yeah. Okay? Knowing that people continually seek to get around the cutout means it's likely people climb over things, do things, mm-hmm. to try and subvert the safety system, and he did nothing about that either. So you can see there's two parts of where Gus's liability for industrial manslaughter. I think the chance of him being charged is not high, but if he was charged, there would be a good likelihood he would be successfully prosecuted. Yeah. The last question is about whether Luca could be charged with breach of primary duty. And the answer is no, Luca would not be successfully charged because Luca has done everything within his power to prevent it. And although Luca, it is argued, could have stood there to prevent people from coming there, that's not a reasonable thing for him to do. He did the risk assessment. He made sure the safety system had integrity to Mm -hmm. the extent that he could, and he constantly raised the concerns and fears that he had. So the short answer is Luca would not be prosecuted and would certainly not be successful at So now next week, can you just remember back, we're going to deal with the new safety regs in Victoria and particularly in relation to women because next Tuesday is? International Women's Day. Yeah, so we thought we'd put a focus on women's safety as part of it, particularly with the alarming data that's coming out around how women are treated online. I'm surprised we made it through.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) look, I'm going to miss you all next week, but uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great session, and I'll
1: uh, I'll join you later. I'll definitely be here with much calmer next week. See See you later, guys. Bye Bye bye.